Well, welcome back to the resurrected Kevin Prendeville show. And yes, it's been basically a full year since our last run of this show. And the reason that that is the case is when I do a new show or when I um, want to get the feel for it, sometimes, uh, you know, if it's, if it's not real successful in the beginning, I'll take a step back and from there decide what really is the best next course of action. Do I just dump the show itself or do we rework the show or what, what do we do with that? Well, I've decided um, that the show wasn't extremely unpopular and it's not as difficult for me to edit and uh, put time into uh, enough time to make it, you know, quality production. Unlike something like uh, the short-lived Connect the Dots series, which took me about a month to edit and, and throw together. Um, and that's, of course, the, the YouTube version. Uh, and it had very little reach and a very little audience retention. I don't mind something, you know, not having a lot of reach, but if, if audience retention is low, that's really where the problem is. So I've decided that it'd probably be best to make this my main show and from there build content around it. And so the basic structure of this new show is uh, quite simple, actually. We're going to begin with something called the opening salvo. And this is, think about the military. So you have your uh, first few shots of, uh, let's say, artillery. This is old-style tactics. And that is to try to condition the enemy to fear the might of your military, of your army, and what what is to come. And so on the show, we begin with the opening salvo to get your mind ready for what we're going to talk about or to address a topic that needs to be talked about in a short amount of time. And so today we're actually going to start with something a little light, but it will get your mind around enjoying the benefits and really what everybody loves about the United States. And that's going to be the most obvious one, the Super Bowl. Now, as we get into the opening salvo here, uh, I want to congratulate the Kansas City Chiefs. For those who don't know, I am a huge football fan. Uh, ever since I was a kid, uh, I've always loved the sport. And so to see a team that I've never seen be as good and successful and as much of a threat as they are. You know, the Chiefs were always kind of a an afterthought, you know what I mean? Even when they had, gosh, Priest Holmes and, and Tony Gonzalez and Trent Green was their quarterback, you know, they had, like, Patrick Sertan as their cornerback, and that was it. They had no defense. And then when they had a decent defense, when they had an old Zach Thomas, but then they also had a, um, a couple high draft picks from... LSU on their defensive front, they didn't have their offense to back it up. They had like Brody Croyle and, uh, well, I guess suppose they had Larry Johnson and Dwayne Bowe, but uh, again, hard to get the ball to Dwayne Bowe when you don't necessarily have the quarterback to, to do that. Now, of course, and then Larry Johnson fell off the map um, and was blacklisted from the NFL, and you can look that whole story up. My main point is, we all can come together, unless you're a 49ers fan, with this Chiefs win here and celebrate the fact that no matter how long it takes you to get somewhere, no matter how long 
it's been since your last victory. Another one could be just right around the corner. Take their coach, Andy Reid, for an example. He has never won the Super Bowl, and the big knock on him has always been he couldn't win the Super Bowl. He always got to the NFC Championship game, which for those who don't know football is the one before the Super Bowl to determine who's going to represent that conference in the big game. So Andy Reid in the early 2000s when he was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, well, he went to the NFC Championship game in 2002, 2001, I'm sorry, 2002, uh, 2003, back to back to back, and just could not win that last game to get into the Super Bowl. Then in 2004, they actually do it. They actually get to the Super Bowl, and they lose. And so then it takes them until 2008 before they're even relevant again as that team gets older and starts to fall apart, and then they run him out of Philadelphia in the early 2010s. He never got back there to redeem that Super Bowl loss. And now, in the 2020s, a whole other decade later, he finally gets there and finally does it. Gets his, gets his Super Bowl win. I don't know what your Super Bowl win is in life. I don't know what that goal that everybody tells you you can't get is right now. But the only thing stopping you from attaining that goal is time. If you stop trying to achieve that goal, then you'll never achieve it. Pretty simple, right? But it doesn't matter. I mean, Colonel Sanders Sanders was how old when KFC took off? 60-something? 68? 70? I don't have it right in front of me, but achieving what you set out to do and beating all odds is possible. And the other point, the other obvious point is surrounding this Super Bowl is the halftime show. I don't know why this is a controversy. Why are we all surprised? For years, the Super Bowl has been uh, hyper-sexualized because you know what? Sex sells. What a surprise. What, uh, companies have been known this for years. Uh, that's why you've got uh, uh, bikini ads, the way that they, they're drawn up. That's why you've got... Um, uh, you know, and that's why when, when they sell uh, uh, cologne, they usually use um, men that are considered attractive, usually actually by women, and an encouragement to, to get their men to buy that cologne or, or to associate positive attributes to that product. It's, it's, it's nothing new that, that, okay, so these women uh, uh, were uh, dancing or... or uh, uh, gyrating or whatever you want to call it, and it seemed a little sexual. Okay, I mean, I'm sorry you're offended, but look, society went down the tubes a long time ago. We're just playing in the ashes, and you want to get mad about this? I mean, and I had to learn this the hard way. You got to pick your fights. You really do. You got to pick your fights, and that helps you better obtain your goals faster. It's not stopping for every little thing that offends you and, and, and trying to make a big deal out of it. Uh, and I didn't watch the halftime show live, so maybe it was different. I Once there was a controversy, I went and looked it up. Um, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm a guy, so, you know, um, I'm rather fascinated with the performers, but 
I still don't think it was that controversial. You didn't have a, a wardrobe malfunction. And again, kids see much worse programming, I'm sure, in their cartoons and, and whatever. I, again, I don't watch that, but, um, you know, I, I'm sure. We Remember when everyone got mad about The Simpsons and that it was going to destroy society and um, Barbara Bush had their, this whole thing against The Simpsons? I mean, that, it, it's the same kind of thing. It's just a whole big uh, uh, nothing burger. There's nothing here to uh, to really sink your teeth in and point to and say that's the reason why Western society is in shambles. And that idea and where I, this is where I want to leave the opening salvo before we take our first break here. That idea that the West and Western societies in shambles or divided or whatever you want to use as your wording is something that I want to bring up because in our next segment, we're going to talk about the American promise, the American dream, and talk about how that's still relevant as we bring this into a business sense. This will help you understand some more of the complex topics that we'll be discussing. But keep it locked right here. This is the Kevin Prendeville Show. And we're back. This is the Kevin Prendeville Show. For those who don't know me, I am obviously Kevin Prendeville. And this show the tagline is sometimes political, always correct. We're going to focus mainly on business, but sometimes we may dip into societal or political issues when they apply. And on that same note, we're going to be talking right now about the American promise, the American dream, and if it's still relevant. You see, you search the American dream or the American promise in uh, a political context, and there are all sorts of videos out there that will tell you that it's dead or that it was a lie or that there are ulterior motives to it. And whether or not you can debate the tagline that arose in the Great Depression to, uh, and, and whether or not it was honest or not, I think one thing is for sure. It was certainly true by the 1950s. And this was in large part due to the baby boom and the GI Bill. Now, the American promise, aside from physical home ownership, which is important, so keep this uh, by your side, keep this note in hand, the American promise is, at the core of it, liberty. It will always be about liberty. It will be about establishing a new society that John Winthrop talked about in his City on a Hill speech. We are different, where every citizen is their own sovereign, and that we live out the principles listed in the Constitution to our best ability and keep our society intact through the extension of the state governments, and we keep them in check with the federal government. Now, you can get into all of the different mechanisms that that goes that that goes into that, and we do talk about some of those on other shows. But at the core of it, the American promise is you can come over here and build or rebuild your life and truly make something of yourself. And we're filled with hundreds of thousands of examples of that. Some very very famous, others nobody talks about. You know, for every Andrew Carnegie, there's a a, a John Smith, some guy who who started out with not a whole lot and ended up building a business that pulled his family up an entire class. Or maybe it moved his family up two classes. He's just not famous 
uh, you know, they didn't name a hospital after him. You might have someone like my grandfather, who was first generation, uh, uh, or the first generation of my family to be born here uh, with uh, Irish parents, and they didn't grow up rich. They grew up at the, the very bottom of, of, of uh, you know, Boston society, and he goes and he fights in World War II, he comes back, and he helps build a thriving uh, shipping business. One that, again, pulled our family from the, the poorer and lower classes up to the middle class. Then my father, who was successful in his own right, brought us up to the upper middle class. And my mother, his wife, helped sustain that. She raised me. She had her own uh, business that was also relatively successful and kept us up in that upper middle class. And now my burden is to do what my grandfather and my father did before me and raise our family up to the highest strata that I can get them. That's the American dream. That's the American promise. And no one but myself is going to get in the way of that goal. Except, perhaps, our finances. Now, this isn't just my goals or my misgivings when it comes to finance, but there could be other factors because we live in, and we have to face this, we live in a current economic situation where you're going to have to deal with the bank at some point, or you're going to have to deal with the stock market at a certain point, or you're going to have to deal with some sort of more complex economic factors. That's just where the world is in the developed nations. And the same's in Europe. In Europe, you've got to deal with uh, a number of other factors, and you've kind of got to follow the lead of the United States, which is a first in human history, where what you do with your money isn't so much about income and expenses anymore as it was even 50 years ago. Because why? Well, one of the main reasons is because of institutions in the United States and in Europe as the Federal Reserve or the central banking system. Now, I'm not going to make a political statement about either, and I'm not going to say whether they are bad or good, but the reality of the situation is debt, finance, personal finance, always comes back to them. The stock market will boon or bust based off of their decisions. And that comes back to our finances. We can't put money in a bank anymore, in a savings account. Heck, in some cases, even in a bond rate anymore. And even be able to outpace inflation because of the necessity of the low prime rate. Now, in places like Germany and other places in Europe, they've actually had to go to a negative bond rate. Just so that the country can pay their bills. Here in the United States, we're not quite there, but we do have a very, very low prime rate at just a couple of percentage points. Now, this is to do a few things. One is to reinflate the real estate bubble that burst in 2008 to try to encourage people to buy more homes, to try to encourage people to take out more mortgages. Obviously, that's how the banking system works, and I'm not faulting them for that. That is an economic 
mechanism that has existed for a hundred years at this point. But the problem is now we're kind of stuck. See, because we now are in full control of the dollar. As in the, the, the Fed no longer has to worry about the price of gold, for instance, affecting the rate of inflation or, or how much a dollar is worth. By adjusting the prime rate, they can exert a very uh, various amounts of, of tools to control how the dollar works. So when you have a government, for instance, the United States government, that's $26 trillion in debt and counting, and I'm sure it will go up by another trillion by the time that we are done with this podcast, you run into a situation in which the prime rate and the inflation rate must stay at a point which is sustainable for the government. This may run counter to what's productive for the people. Right now, we're in a situation where interest rates have to be low because we can't benefit the saver because, you know what? The federal government's not a saver. They're a debtor. They're in debt. And so, you know what they're going to do? Well, they're sure as heck not going to pay a high interest rate for that. And they're going to pay those loans off that they took with deflated dollars. And so, the Fed's going to help them out with that because, frankly, to the Fed... The, the, the government's a higher priority than you are. And so you have these market factors of what they're trying to do, which is uh, to influence society in terms of buying homes and reinflating the real estate market. And you have a situation, and, and that forces Americans in this case, but also the average saver in other parts of the world, it forces them into the stock market because they've got to make a, a, a rate of return that's higher than the inflation rate. And, and then they've got to deal with taxes, but that's another story for another day. And now the Fed's a little stuck because if they raise the prime rate too much, all these people that have bought mortgages at the low rate or refinanced or put off their debt are now maybe not as enticed to refinance or take out a HELOC, for instance, or go into debt to take out a loan. And the government can't afford the new debt or they keep the interest rate, the prime rate low, and they keep the dividend rate low and they affect bonds and, and safer investments, which forces more people into the stock market, which puts them at a much higher risk of loss of their whole savings. It's not just money that they can't afford to lose. It's their savings so that they can retire. And work and money and all of this is related to overall happiness. And radical institutions always rise up when people's money is affected. I mean, the most obvious example is always Germany in the 30s, but what do you think happened with the peasants in and, and, and Russia? Heck, you could go back to uh, the the glorious revolution in, in England, aside from their freedoms being trampled by a Scot who didn't know what he was doing. He was taxing them at a, at a very high rate. You have, um, you know, you have the uh, situation in 
uh, uh, Japan where, where they became more uh, radicalized, where uh, they felt as though the state wasn't nationalistic enough, but in addition to that, they felt as though their taxes weren't supporting what they wanted it to support, which is the expansionist fascistic state that, that showed up, although I would be hesitant to call the imperial Japanese fascistic. Regardless, money or lack thereof among the general populace and the, the feeling of insecurity usually leads to the rise and radical government. Now, as we move into segment two, I want you to think on this and I want you to chew on uh, some of these thoughts that you're having right now because we're going to move into a new story here. Uh, Jerome Powell has said that what? The rate will not change in the first quarter. And there's an interesting article because inside the same article, there's another quote that you just have to hear about how callous the Fed is when it comes to your savings. This is the Kevin Prendeville Show. Stay tuned. And we're back. And I told you to chew on some of what you were thinking and what thoughts you had uh, going into this uh, tumultuous time right now and, and certainly American history. And you think about how much, and, and this is what I was thinking about during that, that same time, uh, on the break, was you think about how much the American dollar actually uh, controls all, all of the different countries. And this has a lot somewhat to do uh, after um, after the war, after World War II, where a lot of developing countries uh, uh, couldn't sustain their own economies. Uh, I'm talking mostly uh, f after decolonization. And so you have places like Zimbabwe and um, and some, you know, uh, some of the middle uh, Ecuador uh, states and uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries that for a time had to, to rely on the American dollar. And still, in some cases, you know, they may have their own dollar, but of course, every place accepts U.S. currency. And so you wonder... Should the U.S. economy fall out, does the rest of the world economy get dragged with it? I mean, we're all connected, so I would argue yes. But it doesn't necessarily work the other way. I don't think should, uh, you know, should the Finnish economy uh, slip up, I don't think that's going to affect much of the world. <coughs> Save for those who are... Uh, in invested in, in Finnish companies and, and their stocks. But uh, there, there's an interesting article here because Jerome Powell, who, who was running the Fed at this point, uh, a Trump appointee, has said that for quarter one, there will be no change in the prime rate. Now, this is decent for real estates and, and, and real estate uh, investors because uh, that still means money is cheap and that there is no reason for uh, concern, that uh, essentially you're still going to be able to leverage a lot of what you have to buy more real estate to earn a higher income. Uh, for realtors, this helps uh, 
people be, be more fluid in moving houses and, and changing places. So on the surface, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a green screen, or they're going to continue to lower the rate. But you know, what was also interesting is that there was a, uh, how do we put this nicely? A very, uh, advanced, very senior federal official, uh, who was also interviewed in the same article, a uh, name is not given, where essentially he says that um, if there's a recession, don't worry, because, and I'm quoting here, the Fed is very powerful, and it has all the tools needed to support the economy. Well, whoop-de-doo, that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, uh, uh, don't worry, the Fed will fix everything. And again, I'm not making this a political statement. I'm not saying that the Fed is good or bad. I, we don't know yet. I don't think there's enough history on it. There's, again, only been about 100 years, you know, versus 1,000 of, of the old way of doing things. And yet this is a bold statement, isn't it? I mean, the economy bottoms out. The economy crashes. Even if it's not as bad as 2008, that resets your compounding curve when it comes to your investments. So who knows the opportunity cost on that on a personal level. But think about this. If they slash the interest rate by 5%, which is their average per economic crisis, and that comes from uh, Simon Black. I'll link the article to you uh, in the description of the podcast if you're listening on iTunes. If you slash the current 1.5 or 1.55 prime rate by 5%, that does what? Puts it in the negatives. That's a pretty darn low interest rate. Again, in order to try to uh, bolster and reinflate the bubble uh, that will burst every so years, uh, 8 to 12 is usually the length of time it takes for the bull market to turn into a bear. Now, the Fed's also screwed because so many people have gotten used to these low rates that they, if they raise the rate, you know, to the points that we saw in the 80s, remember when mortgages were at 15, 18%, double digits? If they if they do that again, uh, people aren't going to be able to afford the uh, a lot of the interest rate. And maybe that has to do with wage stagnation, but that would also have the same negative effect on the economy and, uh, you know, we would raise the interest on our, our, our national debt to a level that we can't sustain, not that we can sustain what we have now. So what are we to do? Well, again, the only thing that we seem seemingly can do is to put our money in the stock market. We have to earn a rate of return that covers all of our bases. And that's fine for supporting, uh, you know, numerous companies. But are we sure that when we choose the funds in our qualified plans, that we're even not necessarily supporting the companies we want to support, but are we even sure that those funds are going into safe companies? Maybe you direct it to be safer, but of course, in order to get any sort of rate of return and, and a safe stock, you need to have a lot of money. There. And 
you know, what is the percent that, that, that you're, you're earning on that money, um, that's in there. It could be that you only have a couple hundred bucks in a large company. And so the, the rate of return uh, on that stock is, is, is very low. You know, is, is the percent that you're earning is how, how accurate is it? I've got, I've got an article here. Um, and this one is again, mainstream comes from, uh, Ford here that says why the average investors rate of return is so low. Now, again, average rate of return is not always indicative of real rate of return because, well, averages can lie. If I have a 100% rate of return, then I have 50% crash, then it goes up again by 100, then I have another 50% crash, I made no money, but I have a 25% average rate of return. Do you see the example there? So anyways, let, here, I'll, I'll quote this article from you that essentially what happens is that, and this is out of your advisor's control, so don't think I'm throwing your advisor under the bus here, um, but essentially fund managers, you know, the people that, that, that run the funds that you and your advisor uh, buy into will have a higher chance if stock A is doing well and stock B is not doing well, they'll put more money into B because they did all the research, quote unquote, and they don't want B to be bad. So they'll put more money in there in an attempt to um, support it instead of taking money out of B. And that can affect the rate of return. And of course, if your rate of return is, or real rate of return is lower than, is lower than what you need it to be to survive the economic conditions that are created by the Fed, are we really sure that we're protected from a potential financial ca catastrophe? And, but this is the last segment, so I don't want this whole thing to just be gloom and doom and you know the world's falling apart and there's nothing you can do and the American dream is over and it's done. That's not at all what I'm talking about. Because there is a fix. You know, it's a high high price tag, but, you know, real estate investment is pretty controllable. You, ha you have the Fed rate, but there are ways of financing it outside of the banking system. And I've got a couple videos that talk about that. And once you buy in, you know, it's a lot of local conditions that, that affect it, and sometimes local politics, which you can influence. Sometimes, you know, outside of local politics, uh, before you buy into the property, you can check local conditions. If you're wholesaling, you know, you don't need those conditions to be indefinite. You can have those conditions only last for a couple of years, but it might be what you need for a profit. Also, you could buy into the private reserve strategy. This is a strategy that puts your money in safer things like oil and apartment buildings and um, things that pay dividends and generate a cash value, which you can then borrow against to invest in risk riskier things like the stock market or real estate. And there are a great amount of uh, advisors and people who are versed in the private reserve strategy or or systems and philosophies that are like it. 
Now, one note here that I won't uh, stress. Is it possible to, to survive a potentially fatal crash, economic crash, by being debt-free? Well, if I have no debt, then, well, you know, I, I, I don't have to worry about the prime rate or anything like that. Well, remember this. Interest is a funny thing. You either pay it or you lose it. So by not taking the bank's money, you are in fact losing interest because you're spending cash and losing what that dollar could have bought you in investments with whatever you're paying for. So again, I'm not saying banks are a bad thing, but, but they may be in trouble here. And I'd be wary of those who take my warning here and try to use it to be debt-free. I want to thank you for joining us on the Kevin Prendeville Show. This is a daily show from Monday to Friday that we will uh, cover many topics of the day and react to situations as they come up. And you'll be able to see how philosophies that we talk about here on the Kevin Prendeville Podcast Hub all connect in our daily lives. I'm Kevin Prendeville, signing off.